Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 98. We are continuing through this Advent season to look at psalms which point forward to the coming of Christ. There are many that speak of the entire earthly ministry, death and resurrection, ascension of Christ, but particularly in the last few weeks we've been focusing on ones that point to his first coming, and you're going to see in a moment that this one kind of fits the bill. It is definitely a messianic psalm, but it may be surprising uh, the connection to Christmas that we may not realize. Psalm 98, and I'm going to read all nine verses. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So let me ask you, when you think of Christmas, do you see it as a time to laugh and dance or a time to weep and mourn? It seems like it's one or the other depending on your circumstances, your family, your situation. I think we all want that dream that the images of Christmas put before us all the time, the dream of having the deeply satisfying joy of reuniting with family and friends, of sharing traditions together and gifts together with the people that you love and feasting together in celebration. But far too often... These holiday gatherings are a time to see our family dysfunctions on display. For many people, instead of it being a time to celebrate the love and joy in their lives, Christmas becomes a time to mourn the alienation that they are experiencing in their lives. We all long for our lives to look like a Hallmark Christmas movie, but the reality is much closer to National Lampoon's Christmas vacation too much of the time. You know the great Christmas carol, Joy to the World. It's probably one of the best known and most loved of all the Christmas carols. Even though, if you've ever looked at it carefully, you would realize that there's no mention of the birth of Christ, no mention of Mary or Joseph or shepherds or wise men or Bethlehem. It's really not about the birth of Christ even though it's probably the best-known Christmas hymn. That's because that wasn't the writer's intention to write a Christmas hymn. 
Isaac Watts wrote it back in the 1700s. Of course, Isaac Watts was one of the greatest hymn writers of all time. And one of Isaac Watts's goal in his, goals in his life was to rewrite the Psalms in light of New Testament revelation. He loved the Psalms, but he thought they aren't written from the perspective of the fullness of the revealed truth that we have since Christ has come. And so he took Psalms and greatly paraphrased them and wrote them including the truth that the Psalms pointed to in the New Covenant. And this joy to the world is that. It's a rewriting of Psalm 98, if you never knew that. Psalm 98 is a victory song. It's meant to be sung loudly. It's meant to be sung, as you can tell, with instrumentation. It's meant to be a joyous, raucous celebration of grace. That's what it's intended to be. If you looked at it carefully, you'll notice it's talking about salvation. The main theme is God delivering his people. But once again, just as we said last week, how often it is that when a psalm writer wants to talk about some great thing that God has done or to talk about some great need in his life, he doesn't give us the details. There's nothing in Psalm 98 that helps us to know what great act of deliverance, what great act of salvation that God carried out that he's celebrating. It does seem to be something in particular that God has done. And of course, commentators being commentators, they can't keep themselves from speculating about what great deliverance, even though the writer's obviously trying to keep us away from thinking about the details, they think, well, what's it referring to? And some commentators say, oh, it's, they think it's written about the, the great deliverance from bondage in Egypt under Moses as the mediator where God led his people from captivity into the promised land. But others think that it's actually, and and there's actually good argumentation to say that it may have been written about the, the great deliverance of God's people from captivity in Babylon after they had been established in the land under a Davidic king for a long time. They eventually, because of their sin and idolatry, they eventually were cast out of the land, were sent into captivity in Babylon, and that this psalm was written to celebrate their deliverance back into the promised land and establishment of his, as a people of God, as a nation of God again. We honestly can't know. There is, the, one of the reasons they think that it's about the deliverance from the Babylonian captivity is because the book of Isaiah, there's a large section in the, at the end of the book of Isaiah that is made up of prophecies that the prophet Isaiah was given from God to tell the people of God about the coming captivity and the eventual deliverance from captivity. And what's interesting is you compare the language of Psalm 98 to that section of Isaiah's prophecies you'll see that that there are phrases that are used over and over again in both of them. And obviously the language is very, very similar. And so they think, well, obviously then the psalmist was using Isaiah's prophecies and now celebrating how God had fulfilled his promises. But I guess I raised the question, how do you know that Isaiah wasn't using the words of the psalmist about an earlier deliverance? So anyway, all this to say, we don't know. 
And I think the writer is intentionally not only not wanting us to get caught up in the details of whatever great thing God had done in that one time, he's purposely wanting to draw our attention to the entire work of God saving his people, what we call the entire plan of redemption from the beginning of Scripture to the end of time. That's the salvation, I think, that even the writer of the psalm primarily has in view. This is a victory song, a victory celebrating God's saving of his people in the broadest sense of the word, from the 20,000 foot view. Verse 4 says, make a joyful noise. Some translations say, make a joyful shout to the Lord. It's that kind of an uncontrollable scream that emanates from your lungs and your mouth when you win a great victory, at that moment of victory. For many of you, that was two weeks ago when the Penn State defense stopped the Wisconsin running back on fourth and one. And you realize that, yes, they were going to be Big Ten champions. And if you really were any kind of a fan, a scream emanated from your mouth at that moment when you realized that they were going to win. That's the kind of a sentiment, the emotion that the psalm writer is calling us to. We have won. We are the champion. No, I won't get into Queen here, but <laughs> what are we celebrating, though? He uses the word salvation. And even though in Christianese and church speak, we kind of have a concept of what salvation is, obviously, but we're going to be talking about broadcasting this salvation to the world. And as our culture has gotten less and less connected to a biblical worldview, that concept of salvation has gotten more and more foreign to the people around us. So you say, we need to be saved, and they'll say, saved from what? Life is pretty good. What do I need to be saved from? We had a family that uh, began attending our ch- my former church in Philadelphia, They had just moved from South Africa to the Philadelphia area and were only a couple weeks into living in the country and their company had set them up in a a hotel near our church and they started attending our church. And the wife from the couple told me this story. She said that living in a hotel was an interesting experience. One thing is they... She liked the fact they had a maid coming every day to clean up the room. And so she, being a Christian, a solid Christian, she wanted to develop a relationship with this maid and minister to her in some way. And and so she, at one point, said to the maid, are you saved? But she had a pretty strong Afrikaner's accent, and it was hard for the maid to understand what she was saying. She said, what? Do you, what, what? I, I don't understand. Are you saved? And she said, what? I, I don't get it. She said, no, no. Are you saved? And the maid said, oh, oh yeah, down at First National Bank at the corner. So obviously, the concept of being saved or needing to be saved was something that she had to go back a few steps and start to talk about that part of the gospel and not just assume that the maid understood what it meant to be saved. Tim Keller has a great summary of what the problem is. What do we need to be saved from? And the word he uses is the word alienation. We need to be saved from alienation. He said that if you go back to the original sin, as the scriptures reveal it in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve committed that first act of rebellion against their creator, the fall of man, he says at that point you can immediately see the effects of sin that we still today need to be saved from. And he calls it alienation. 
says there's four types of alienation that we need to be saved from because of that sin and all the sins that have come from it. First of all, obviously, alienation from God. Before sin, Adam and Eve were made in the image of their creator, made to be in fellowship with their creator, and they walk with their creator in the garden, in intimate fellowship. But after sin, immediately what did they do? They hid from the Lord. Now, of course, to hide from the Lord means kind of like a two-year-old saying, I'm hiding, you know, kind of fruitless to try to hide from the God who knows all and is everywhere, but they tried to hide from God because of their guilt. Because they were guilty, really guilty, of cosmic sin against their creator, it broke fellowship with their creator. And God, as a vivid evidence of that break in fellowship, that alienation from the holy God who created them, he cast them out of the garden. And from that point on, fallen mankind has been alienated from God. It's created a deep ache in our souls that we don't know what to do with, and even if we did know what to do with it, we wouldn't be willing to do what we should do with it. We have an emptiness. We have a longing for an intimate relationship that has been denied us because of our sin. A fellowship that only our creator can fill. But what do we, what do, we do? We may sense, we may even acknowledge the spiritual emptiness within us, but what do we do? We go out and we chase after false gods. Gods of our own imagination. Gods that that satisfy men, gods that meet the agendas of men, false gods, and they become like spiritual prostitutes to us. They fill our needs for a moment, but they leave us more empty and more destroyed afterwards. One of my favorite musicians is Bruce Springsteen. And Bruce, you know, my wife always says, I've said this before, she says, I... I, only listen to mopey music, I only listen to minor key music, stuff that dwells on the negative side of life. But I think that's part of music's purpose, is to help us to process living in a fallen world. And, and one of, and Bruce has a lot of songs like that, but one of his songs that I've deeply loved, and I, meant, I remember the first time I really listened to the lyrics, it just broke my heart. What a, what a powerful picture of a broken marriage, a marriage that was breaking up, a husband and wife, the whole process of the song is written from the husband's perspective of a marriage that's ending. And the last stanza, as he's, this broken husband is drowning his sorrows in a beer at the local pub, it's written from his perspective. Listen to what it says. There's a girl across the bar. I get the message she's sending. She ain't looking too married, and me, well, honey, I'm pretending. Last night I dreamed I held you in my arms. The music was never ending. We danced as the evening sky faded to black, one step up and two steps back. Realizing that his sin was driving him farther and farther away from his wife, and yet what he really longed for was to have that relationship restored. And I've always thought, what a picture that is of us with God. There's always some false God over there flirting with us, but what we really long for is the relationship with our true creator, and yet because of our sin, we just find ourselves moving farther and farther away from him. 
That's that hunger. We hopelessly long for what we've lost, but in our sin, we're unwilling to seek it. The second alienation that Keller talks about is alienation from self. After Adam sinned in the garden, God confronted him in his sin, and Adam said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. His awareness of his being exposed was something he didn't worry about until he had sin to cover up. He had shame. He was guilty, and because of his guilt, he had shame. And shame leads to fear, and shame leads to inner brokenness. R.C. Sproul, I was listening to his podcast this week, and he talked about how sometimes he'd be arguing with somebody about the essentials of Christianity, about the gospel. And they would be throwing up all kinds of objections, and he would argue with them, but every time he'd try to answer one of their objections, they would throw up another one. And it, got to, you know, it gets to be an endless cycle sometimes. He says, so you know what I do to break the cycle? He says, wait a minute, let me just ask you one question. What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your guilt? You don't like my answers about what I say God has done about my guilt, but what do you do with your guilt? Well, Adam tried to hide it, but he couldn't, and it just sunk deeper and deeper into his soul. There are physical causes to psychological problems, but of course the physical causes, as we'll see in a minute, comes from sin ultimately anyway. But most of the causes of our psychological problems are a result of our sin or somebody else's sin against us. Sin that's not been dealt with in one way or another. I've said this before, but we're all somewhere on the spectrum between totally insane and Jesus Christ. We're all somewhere on that spectrum. We're all sinners. We're all messed up. We're all broken inwardly. And sin is the ultimate cause. We are alienated from our true self from what we are created to be. And as a result, we experience anxiety, depression, emptiness, insecurity, discontentment, anger. Which leads to alienation, the third type of alienation, alienation from each other. As soon as they sinned, what did Adam and Eve do? They tried to cover their shame with the fig leaf. They tried to hide They put up a front to cover their shame. And then they began pointing fingers at each other. It wasn't my fault, it was her fault. It wasn't my fault, it was his fault. And that's what sin does. The pride and selfishness at the core of our fallen natures puts us in competition with everyone around us. And what results is greed, crime, oppression, poverty, injustice, racism, war, and sin is the root cause. Alienation from others creates, is created from the sin in our hearts. And then the fourth type of alienation that Keller talks about is alienation from creation itself. After Adam and Eve sinned, God placed the entire creation, this beautiful, intricate, perfectly working creation, he put it under a curse. And as a result of the curse, which was a result of our sin, We have weeds and thorns and parasites and wild animals and famines and tragedies and hurricanes and headaches and viruses and cancers. It's because of alienation from creation 
that has resulted in our rebellion against God. So every problem we have, every person in this room has a myriad of problems. Every one of those problems is related in some way to a sin. Adam's sin, our sin, somebody else's sin. But it's all a manifestation of the core alienation from God, ourselves, each other, and the creation itself. Psalm 98 is about the victory over all that alienation. Psalm 98 is our victory song because God has done all that is necessary to save us from this alienation, all four types of alienation. He is going to send a Messiah, is what this psalm is about, to bring back paradise, to restore things all to the way they were intended to be. Now this coming, Psalm 98, speaks of it as though it's one coming. Matter of fact, a lot of the Old Testament speaks of the coming of the Messiah to restore all things the way they were intended to be at the beginning. Most of the Old Testament speaks of it as though it's one event. It's only later, as God slowly reveals his plan of salvation, that we begin to understand it actually is two great events, two comings of the Messiah. In theology, we call that prophetic perspective. It's seeing things that are off at a distance as being one, when you get closer to them, you actually begin to realize that they're separated in time from one another. I use the example of when we lived in Kansas City, every summer we had to drive from Kansas City to the Rocky Mountains for a church camp. And I don't know if you ever made that drive before, but it is uh, purgatory for a while because you get in your car and you leave Kansas City and you drive all the way across Kansas, which is a very wide state. And then you go into Colorado and it's a very wide state and the landscape doesn't change. There's nothing to look at. I'm sorry if you're from the Midwest, but I'm from the East. There's nothing to look at. I mean, you can see a big, great sky for only for so long before it all begins to look alike. There's no topography. Everything is flat and all farm fields. But then you start to see this, this purple ribbon on the, on the horizon, and it's the Rocky Mountains. And as you drive towards it, for a long time, it looks like it's just one big, long mountain, you know, just one long mountain chain. And you're coming up to a wall in the middle of our country or on the side of our country. But when you get there, you realize that actually there are foothills and then smaller mountains and then bigger mountains, and they're actually separated by hundreds of miles. And that's prophetic perspective. That's what the Old Testament prophets, they're looking at Christ coming from a distance, and they see it as one great coming, but as more and more revelation was given through the course of the Old Testament, we begin to realize it's actually two comings of the Messiah. And so that's what we see in Psalm 98, is the one great act of salvation. And in a very real sense, from God's perspective, it is one act of salvation. And that's how we're going to look at it this morning. Hope for those who are alienated. Psalm 98 gives five different truths about how salvation comes. Now, I know you're going to cringe when I just said five, because I usually have three points in my sermon, and you're going to think, oh, no, I'm going to be here till one o'clock. No, these are are shorter points than usual, I promise you. First of all, Salvation is God's work. That's the first great truth that Psalm 98 tells us. Verse 1. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. His right hand and his holy arm have accomplished 
salvation. Again, we're thinking of salvation not as a, a sequential act of, you know, sequence of events, but as one great act of salvation. How has it happened? God did it. His right arm, his right hand and his holy arm, that's a way, that's a, the Bible's way of saying it's all of God. The entire work from beginning to end, God did it alone. It's unilateral action on God's part to save us. And of course, in the birth of Christ, there's a real sense in which literally it became true. The right hand and the, and the holy arm of God saved us because the eternal Son of God became man. He added to his divine nature arms and legs and hands and feet and lived among us as a perfect human being. God became a man in order to do everything necessary to save us. Nothing needs to be added to what God did. Nothing. Nothing needs to be added to what God did. That's an important truth to understand about this great salvation. Matter of fact, you must not add anything. You must not try to add anything to what God did. The scripture tells us that we are helpless against sin. We're incapable of changing our sinful natures. We are incapable of paying for our own sins. We are hopelessly lost unless God does it. Jeremiah says that, the prophet Jeremiah says that we can no more change our sinful nature than a leopard can change his own spots. Isaiah said that even the so-called righteous things that we do are corrupted by sin and are therefore unacceptable to God. They're as filthy rags, he says. Not only do they not count, they, 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 they don't count towards righteousness in and of themselves because they're corrupted by our selfishness. They're rooted in selfishness. They're motivated by self-glory, even the righteous things that we do. So not only are we not able to pay back God for anything we've done, even the righteous things we have done are unacceptable in his sight. So God must do it. He must not only take the first step in saving us, he must take every step in saving us. The whole process of being born again, receiving the gift of faith and the gift of repentance, receiving the gift of justification, the gift of sanctification, the gift of glorification, these are all unilateral acts of God where he does it. He produces it in us. Even the things that we do in response, like faith, are the result of his working in us first. God is able and willing to take away all the alienation in your life. God is willing and able to take away all the alienation in your life. It's his work. So the bad news is you can't do anything about all this alienation, but the good news is God has already done it all. Secondly, salvation is just. And I think a superficial understanding of the gospel misses this point, but to the New Testament writers, this was vitally important in understanding the gospel. The gospel, the message of salvation, is about justice, about righteousness. Look at verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. That's a parallel statement. In other words, to the writer of the psalm, salvation and righteousness are the same thing. God has revealed his salvation. That means he's revealed his righteousness. Salvation is just, according to scripture. We may not think that's an important point, but to God, it's all important. Because God is holy. 
God is just. God cannot look upon sin. God cannot accept sinners. Sin must be dealt with. That's the message of Scripture. God doesn't overlook sin. He doesn't tolerate sin. He doesn't excuse sin. He deals with sin. And that's what salvation is all about. How does a just and holy God treat guilty sinners as though they were innocent? He does it by becoming one of us and living a perfect life and then offering up that perfect human life body and soul, as a sacrifice of atonement on the cross, where he bears the wrath of God in our place. God the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, he paid for every single sin, past, present, and future, that you have committed or will commit. He has paid it all. It is a just salvation. Sin is fully dealt with. Sin is no longer an issue for those who put their faith in the risen Lord because it has been put far away as east is from west, By just means, it has been paid for. It reveals the righteousness of God. It reveals the justice of God. Because he does not excuse our sin, he punishes our sin at the cross. What do you do with your guilt? How do you answer the question? What do I do with my guilt before this holy God? It's been nailed to the cross and put away. Romans 3.26, that's what Paul is saying. This is such a vital verse in the book of Romans. He says that God the Father sent his son to the cross for this reason, to demonstrate his justice at the present time. We would say to save us. Would say, he's saying the same thing. To demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. How could a holy God justify sinners like you and me? He does it through the cross. God's solution to our problem of sin and alienation vindicates his justice. It had to because of the kind of God that we serve. Thirdly, Psalm 98 tells us that salvation is promised by God. Verse 3, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. What's he saying there? He's saying God made a promise to Israel. A covenant promise. He bound himself to Israel. A unilateral promise. I will save you. I will provide a Messiah. I will provide a Redeemer. I will provide a sacrifice, an atonement for your sin. God has promised it. And here in Psalm 98, we're celebrating God fulfilling his promise. God promised Adam and Eve at the point of their sin that, that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent and the curse would be reversed. Christ fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of intricate, detailed prophecies. And the purpose of that was to show that, yes, he was who he claimed to be, but also to show that God is a God who always fulfills his promise to the last detail. He never misses a detail that he has promised. And our faith is built upon that trustworthiness of the God that we serve. When you think about the alienation in your life, the people that you're alienated from, the business relationships that are problematic, the the family relationships that are problematic, the church relationships that are problematic, so often it comes down to broken promises. We can't trust in the promises of other sinners. Matter of fact, God's promises are on the other end of the spectrum from 
man's promises. You have politicians' promises on this end of the spectrum. And you have God's promises on this end of the spectrum. You expect politicians to break their promise. You expect God to always keep his promise faithfully, perfectly. And we build our lives on that. That's what gives us the confidence that what God has said he would do, what God did at the cross, will bring about the fullness of the salvation that is to come. The fourth truth about salvation that Psalm 98 teaches us is that salvation is for all nations. Look at verses 3 and 4. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Now he's not saying by all the earth, he's not saying all the earth is going to be saved. What he's saying there is that salvation is available to every sinner on the planet. That every kind of person is able to to receive this salvation if they will believe. It's available to every kind of sinner. And I think that's a powerful message in a cult in a day and age, the last few months especially, but it's been true for a long time, that in this culture, we're so focused on our differences, our earthly differences, our different races, our different genders, our difference in social class, our difference in economic class. We're so focused on our differences What a message of hope we have with the gospel that this gospel is for all nations, all races, all genders, all social classes. It's for all types of sinners. No one is beyond the grace of God because of the state that they're in in this world. This salvation is available to all. Let me read to you Paul exulting in that in Ephesians chapter 2. He says in verse 11, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to you who were near. This is the peace that the promise of the birth of Christ brought. Peace on earth, goodwill to men, that's the peace. That there is no alienation to those who believe the gospel. Matthew 24, Jesus said to his disciples, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Verses verses 5 and 6, there's a description of a glorious international choir singing with a glorious orchestra. Think Hallelujah Chorus times a thousand. That's, that's the kind of picture that Psalm 98 is trying to put before us. That you've got people from every tribe, every race, every nation, every type of person on earth. You have every kind of sinner represented coming together from all nations 
to praise God for this great saving work that rescued us from all this alienation. But that's not enough, is it? The psalm ends by taking that orchestra and that choir and making it much bigger because the last point that he makes is salvation is for all the creation. Not just the elect within the creation, but for all creation. Our salvation is worthy of bigger praise than what verses 5 and 6 describe. So he goes on in verses 7 and 8 to say, Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing together, sing for joy together. Remember what Jesus said? If his disciples stayed quiet, the stones would cry out in praise to God. And when, in a real sense, that's going to happen when he comes the second time. All creation is going to join in this chorus, this massive chorus of praise to God. Notice the progression. It's almost, and I've seen concerts done this way, where you start with like a little you know, quartet or maybe a madrigal choir, and then you bring a bigger choir in around them to fill out more of the music as the, as the, the song goes on, and then at the end you bring in everything, you know. Again, Hallelujah Chorus, uh, 1812 Overture, whatever, you know, something that just builds and builds and builds. And that's really what Psalm 98 portrays. And, you know, you have Israel singing God's praises for his saving, his faithfulness to his promises and saving Israel. But then you have all the nations coming in alongside of Israel, all the elect from all of the nations of the world coming in alongside of Israel. And then you have all the creation itself, the hills, the rivers, the skies proclaiming the greatness of God for his great work of salvation. It's, you see, we sometimes forget that, that salvation is not just for our souls. That the goal is not just to get our souls out of this mess and into heaven. The goal of salvation is to restore paradise, to make a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's the goal of salvation, and it is coming. It will happen. Paul exalts in that over in Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 19. For the creation waits for, with eager longing for the revealing of the, son, revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. All of creation is going to celebrate with us when the work of salvation is finally complete. In verse, you know, remember Isaac Watts wrote this, this, uh, this great song, Joy to the World. He based it on Psalm 98. But what's interesting is it's become this great Christmas carol that celebrates the first coming of Christ when really, if you listen carefully, this psalm is really about the second coming of Christ. That's really the focus. It's not so much on the birth of Christ. It's on his return. Look at verse 9. It says, Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. He is going to restore righteousness to this fallen world. To us, his people who believe in Christ and accept the Messiah by faith, and to the all-created order, everything that is wrong, everything that is corrupted, everything that is twisted, everything that is, is dark, is going to be made right. Once and for all, for all eternity. Shalom is the Old Testament word for that, peace. 
Peace in the Old Testament, the word shalom, doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It means the presence of paradise, of God's being restored and reconciled to his people and all alienation being cleansed and taken away. That's the goal of salvation. Or to use the words of Isaac Watts, joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. You know, if you were to ask me today, what's the best Christmas present? If I could have anything, I mean, no holds barred, anything, what would be the best Christmas present I could have? You know what I'd ask for? Just Christmas Day, just one day without any effects of sin. Just one day of rest from the effects of sin. All the alienation taken away. All the struggle gone. No more sinful thoughts to fight against. No unkind words to respond to. No pain and suffering. No sadness, no frustration, no weariness. But you know what? That really is what Christmas is about. Is that because of God's great work of salvation, we're going to have that for eternity. Before we realize it. It's coming much sooner than we realize. We are going to have that for eternity. We celebrate on Christmas, that's why Joy to the World is appropriate at Christmas, because it celebrates both the first coming and the second coming, ultimately. And that's what we celebrate, is God saving us, removing the alienation that our sin has produced. Salvation, according to Psalm 98, is reconciliation with God by grace, which produces reconciliation with ourselves, reconciliation with others, and reconciliation with the whole created world. Alienation gone. If that's what Christmas is about, I'm going to leave you with one last challenge. I'd ask you to think about somebody you're alienated from. Somebody that you're not in right relationship with. What a better way to celebrate Christmas than to take a step towards them. They may not respond in kind, but it's much better than giving a present to somebody that they don't really want. Make it your present to do something kind, to take a step towards somebody that you're alienated from. I can't think of a better way to celebrate what Christmas is all about. God removing alienation through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for this great hymn. Thank you for the even greater psalm that it's based upon. And Lord, forgive us for dwelling upon the darknesses and and corruptions of this world and complaining and whining. Help us to lift our eyes above all that, to realize that Christ has come. He has done all that needed to be done at the cross. He has risen from the dead. He is seated at your right hand, and he is coming again to judge the world in righteousness and equity. Father, strengthen that hope within us in this Christmas season, and may we communicate that hope to the alienated world around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.